I want us to zoom in on who Jesus is, even in this famous scene at the Garden of Gethsemane. And I just want to make one point about who Jesus is here. And that point is that even in the darkest moments of his life, Jesus is still fully God. Even in the deepest and darkest, most difficult times of his life, Jesus is still fully God. And after emphasizing this point, I just want to draw a couple of applications. So how we see that Jesus is still fully God, we have to keep in mind all of the events that took place going into our passage. If you remember, Jesus had eaten a final meal with his uh, disciples, the meal of Passover, and it was nighttime. And after singing a hymn, just like we did, he leads his disciples out to the Mount of Olives to tell them, and he says, on this very night, the shepherd will be struck, and all of you, the sheep of the flock, will be scattered. He takes three, Peter, James, and John, to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He leads them by the entrance, and he himself goes a little bit deeper into the foliage to pray alone. And he needs to pray. Because he knows what is going to happen next. He tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He goes about a stone's throw from there and kneels down praying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it's very clear that he's in deep anguish because he knows that in a short amount of time, he's going to receive the fullness of God's wrath and hatred against all evil and all sin. And he's going to know that for the first time in all eternity, he's going to experience something other than the fullness of God's love. This rejection that he's never experienced before. And with that in his heart, he is in deep anguish. Anguish, And so as this is in Jesus' mind, as he kneels down and prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. Gospel writer Luke, in his version, he says that Jesus, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And as visual as that image is, as Sweat drops of blood comes down to the ground. That is not the only blood that we see in this scene. John, if you read verse 1, says that this took place by the brook Kidron. And that brook, if you follow that brook all the way up, it goes to the temple in Jerusalem. And keep in mind, this was the time of Passover where thousands of Jews all across the Roman world would come to this temple to make their sacrifices. Some commentators think there's thousands and thousands of sheep and goat and lamb that was killed in that temple. And as their blood shed, it was drained out to the bottom of the temple into this brook, Kidron. And I don't think it's coincidence that John writes this. Because as Jesus is kneeling, as he sees his own drops of blood, he also sees that river, red full of the blood of the sacrifices, pointing forward to how he's going to shed his own very blood for the atonement, for the forgiveness of our sins. And can you imagine how he would be feeling at that moment 
in anguish. His disciples falling asleep, the people that he counts on to help him in this time of need. And in front of him, not only does he see his own blood, he sees a river full of blood pointing forward to how his blood is going to be shed. And right here, he sees Judas procuring a band of soldiers with torches and weapons led by the officers and the Jewish leaders. And in verse 3, we're told that it was a band of soldiers. And the word behind that word band, if you want to get a little bit more specific, it's also the word cohort. And it has a very specialized meaning because that word cohort in the Roman Empire was a specific number of soldiers, anywhere from 600 to 1,000 soldiers. So a cohort of soldiers came. Now, the gospel writer John, he doesn't say the full number came, but at the very least, it wasn't just a small handful of soldiers, at least in the hundreds. Because they're thinking if they arrest Jesus this night, all of his followers are going to revolt. So they were getting ready. So keeping in mind all that Jesus is feeling and thinking and the anguish that he is in, opens his eyes, he sees Judas coming with hundreds of Roman soldiers. And this is where we see Jesus' humanity, his brokenness, his anguish, how he feels betrayal and pain. As Hebrews chapter 2 says, he was made like us in every respect, and rightfully so, because as Jesus is fully man, he is able to save us from our sins, the sins committed by man, so that he can become this high priest who intercedes for us to God. Hebrews 2 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Now with all this that's taking place, emphasizing Jesus' weakness, his frailty, his humanity, I want us to note a couple of observations. First, Jesus, all the while, is fully aware of what's going on, And still fully aware of what's going to happen. The gospel writer makes clear in verse 4, if you see, as the soldiers and leaders approach Jesus, it writes, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And if you think about this scene, it's a very unusual scene. If there was a band of police officers coming to arrest one of us, we would be surprised. We would not be expecting them to arrest any one of us, we will be in the unknown. But Jesus, knowing fully who was coming, at what time, and in what manner, imagine, they're coming, getting ready to ambush Jesus and his followers, and Jesus is by the entrance saying, I'm here. I'm ready to go. And just how shocked must these soldiers have been? They were thinking to ambush Jesus and his followers, and he knows exactly What's to happen? He says, do what you came to do, knowing all that would happen to him. Even earlier, Jesus once says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus is fully aware of what's going on. The second observation is to know that Jesus, he is still fully in control. Fully in control. 
Not only is he aware of everything that's going on in this desperate, dark, hopeless situation, he's fully in control of all the events that are taking place. If you read the flow of the passage, there's a couple of verses when I read it that just really jumped out at me. And if you see, when he says in verse 5, whom do you seek? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And in response, Jesus says, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, he was standing there with them. They're dumbfounded. They don't respond to him. And Jesus says again, I am he. And it's at this second when he says, I am he, John writes that the whole group of soldiers, all of them, they drew back and they fell. And that jumped out at me because that's not what happens when you encounter a person. If someone knocks at your door looking for you and you say, this is me, I am he, their response is not to draw back and fall to the ground at your feet, prostrate. But for Jesus, when he says, I am he, this is exactly what happens. Because the words that he used, I am he, it goes all the way back. If you remember, when Moses asks God, who are you? When I go to the Egyptians, who am I going to say sent me? And what does God say? I am who I am. That word, I am, revealing that it is God himself, creator of the universe, the one in control of all things. And Jesus Christ himself takes that same phrase and says, I am he. And it is that encounter with Jesus, still fully God, that the soldiers, the Jewish leaders, they cannot help but draw back, fall at his feet. And it is important that the gospel writer John, he includes this. It's not the only time. A few chapters back in chapter 8, there's a scene when Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, talking about Abraham. And Jesus says that even Abraham looked forward to the day that I will come, and he rejoiced in me. And the Pharisee says, how can he look forward to you? You're not even over 50 years old. And Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. Making himself equal with God. I am fully God. And it is response to that that the Pharisees, they pick up stones to kill him. It's a statement that he is saying that even in the bleakest, the darkest, the most hopeless situation, Jesus is still God. Even when the fullness of his humanity is very clear in his sweats of blood, in his weakness, in his betrayal, and when it seems like that he is just hopeless, don't forget he is still God. The soldier is drawing back, falling at his feet. And it tells us no matter how bleak a situation might be to the human eyes, no matter how hopeless, how dark the picture is, subsumed under all of that, Jesus is still fully divine, fully powerful, fully in control to keep you, to protect you, and to love you. And here's the application. I want to zoom in on another character, and this is Peter. As this dialogue is happening between Jesus and the soldiers, Peter is watching all of this, and Jesus finally says, if you're here to seek me, take me, but let my disciples go. 
if you're like me, whenever I hear those kinds of sacrificial statements, especially in movies, you know, like war movies, take me, let my friends stay, I get all pumped up. And that's the kind of person I am. And think about Peter, just how passionate of a person he was, hearing Jesus say, take me, let my disciples stay, don't take them. And in response, and Peter, he's pretty commendable here takes his sword, and he uh, strikes the high priest's servant's ear. Now, mind you, it was a very bad aim. Out of all the places to strike, he strikes his ear. And think about it. It's in the face of hundreds of Roman soldiers. There are only four of Jesus' followers, Jesus himself and the three. You've got to at least commend Peter. It was kind of brave. To be willing to protect his Jesus in the face of all of these soldiers? As brave and as commendable as it is to try to protect Jesus, it's not according to God's will. It's not according to his plan. And that's why Jesus rebukes him. He says in verse 11, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In Matthew's account, Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will even now furnish me with over 12 legions of angels? Now think about what happened. Hundreds of soldiers drew back, fell to the feet at Jesus just by him saying the words, I am. And Peter, in his mind, he's thinking that his one sword can make a difference. And he's forgotten that he is with the God of the universe. He thinks that he can change the outcome with his one sword and to strike one ear of a servant. Do you see the irony here? It's borderline comical. But as ironic as it is, do you see how this reveals our hearts? Because how many of us are lying deep in anguish, perhaps? Perhaps there's a situation in our lives where everything looks dark and bleak and hopeless and it's difficult. Where many other times the only conclusion that we can make is life is unforgiving, life is dark, and it is hopeless. And perhaps we feel the same thing that Jesus probably felt in that garden in anguish. Depressed lonely, perhaps grieving over lost relationships, maybe other relationships with loved one that's grown cold. But is that all we see? The darkness and the hopeless situation. But do you see in the garden how Jesus is still fully God? He's still the great I am who is fully aware of all that's going on in your life and fully in control of all that is going on in your life. And for you to try to change the outcome of all that God has in store for you with one sword, with bad aim, it's comical. Jesus was not acting according to Peter's will, but according to God's will. And it reflects our own hearts, how we try to take up our own swords, try to change the outcome of our lives with our own ability, our own strength, our own opinion of what our lives are supposed to be like. And we'll do whatever we can to make sure that our lives end up the way that we plan it. Forgetting the fact that Jesus is with you. God of the universe, fully aware, 
fully in control. Jesus' purpose here is not to be protected, but to drink the cup of wrath that God the Father has given him. To do God's will. And so let me ask, what is God's will for your life? What has God promised you? What did he promise that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what did he say your life was going to be? Did he say it was going to be a bed of roses? Or did he say, anyone who would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Did he ever promise that he will make your life just instantly perfect? That whatever problem that you have, if you pray, that he'll just magically make it vanish. But it's God's will for us to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And for his sake, we suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ and to know him in the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, even in death. Isn't that the promise of God. Isn't that God's will? You know, a few weeks ago, I had to write a letter uh, to uh, my seminary, um, kind of laying out what my future ministry endeavors was going to be like. And I think, in a sense, they just wanted to know why I'm still at school after all these years. So I had to explain what my plans were, and they told me to give an outline of just what I've been doing the past few years. So I went all the way back to 2011, when I told them how I was in Taiwan and I encountered a bunch of Mormon missionaries and I could not defend the faith. And so with that conviction, I went to seminary. My plan was to graduate as soon as I could in three years and go back to the mission field. And that was in 2011 when I first wrote that intent. And then this time around, I had to add a few more things. In the year 2014, no longer am I heading overseas but I've decided to stay for a few years to help form a potential team from our church who is dedicated to reach the unreached people groups in East Asia. I had to add March 2015, no longer am I at my current church in West Philadelphia, but I've been called to serve at our sister church in Renewal, Devon. November 2015, God has called me to step in to serve as a pastor of this church. Keep adding more and more things. Now, March of 2018, at this point, I am not sure when I will be overseas. But the Lord has called me to be a part of a church plant, Renewal Mainline. And I cannot give the estimated time of my departure from missions. Unknown. Unknown until our church is further established with its pastors, fully committed to the Great Commission and established in this community. And I ended that letter to the school with Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. If I had to write another letter of why I think God had me where I am from 2011 to 2018, seven years I think now, and not overseas, I think I would run out of pages. I have a lot of reasons. Number one, to be challenged to learn how to love the way Jesus loved his sheep as a pastor. Number two, to have developed some of the most intimate relationships with my brothers and sisters as we partner together in this ministry at Renewal Mainline. 
Number three, to be humbled, to know that not an inch of God's kingdom will be advanced based on my gifting, power, or personality. Number four, to be able to receive the love of the local church and how the body of Christ together is involved in the Great Commission. Number five, to have learned and continue to learn how Christ loves his church as his bride as I learned to love my wife, whom God sent into my life in 2015, the exact year that God sent me to this church. Number six, to be satisfied and content in Jesus Christ that no matter what my life brings, no matter what fruit my ministry brings, to be filled with joy in the cross and nothing but the cross. I thought of those six things in two minutes. I could have kept on going. I have a feeling on the way home, Joanna's going to say, how come I'm number five? I should be number one. <laughs> Jesus Christ, by the time he got up from his prayer in that garden, he resolved to say, not my will, but yours. And I want to ask our church, are you in step? Are you in line with God's will for your life? Or have you been just swinging your sword trying to change this and try to change that and try to make your life come out the way that you envisioned it? Don't ever forget God is able to send down a legion of angels in your life. He's able to make your enemies fall at your feet with a word of his mouth. And yet he doesn't. Why? Perhaps there is another will for your life, and that is to know him in death and suffering. He's not operating on your purposes, but his purposes for you. Because if Jesus had operated on our terms, if he followed Peter and his decisions, you and I would be people most pitied without a resurrection. Without the forgiveness of sins. Jesus could have died that night in that battle with the soldiers. And he would have been remembered as a great man. But he wouldn't have drank the cup of wrath. He wouldn't have carried the cross. He wouldn't have been our savior. But yet in the midst of the darkest moment of Jesus' life. Not my will, but your will be done. He promises you will never be alone. He will never forsake you, not even in your darkest moments. His concern is for you. Even in this very passage, he says, don't take them, take me. And for Jesus, even in his weakest moment in the garden, he cared more for Peter, James, and John more than his life. And even in his weakest moment on the cross, he cared more for your eternal life and your welfare. Dying the death that we deserve more concerned with us than him. And we know that even in the darkest of our gardens, whatever garden you are in, Jesus is fully aware of all that you're going through. And yet he is also fully in control. And he is acting out, working out God's will and purposes for your life. Amen. Let's pray. As we continue to worship tonight, the night that he was arrested and he died on the cross, let's take a few minutes 
And let me ask you, what kind of garden do you find yourself in? In anguish and in pain. And perhaps I could raise the question, is God allowing you to take part and share in the sufferings of Christ? What is God's will for your life? Is it a life that is scot-free of gardens, but a life that shares with Christ? Not in only the blessings, but also in these gardens. Let's pray.